Himalayas Studios. It's Tuesday, everyone. This is Retake. I'm your host, John Horn. We're bringing you a bonus episode today because for the first time in 15 years, Hollywood has been hit with a potentially crippling strike. As is almost always the case in the industry, the strike was launched by the union representing screenwriters. That's the Writers Guild of America. After more than a month of negotiations with film and TV studios and streamers, the WGA was unable to agree on a new contract with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or AMPTP. Late Monday night, the WGA said it was going on strike, with picketing starting at studios and streamers Tuesday afternoon. The WGA has been seeking raises in minimum salaries and greater pay for streaming series, in part tied to a show's success rather than a flat fee. The Guild also wants to set minimum staffing levels and longer terms of employment, at least 10 weeks, for writers involved in TV and streaming series. The AMPTP says the WGA's demands are unreasonable and too costly. The last WGA strike lasted 100 days. It started in November of 2007 and concluded in February of 2008. Earlier today, I spoke about the WGA strike with Austin Cross, who is hosting AirTalk on Elliot 89.3. Here are some excerpts from our conversation. Morning, John. Good morning to you. It was a, uh, we talked a little bit earlier in the break, it was pretty late night for you. How did this strike announcement come down? I saw you yawning a couple minutes ago, too. Oh, my goodness. With enough caffeine, I can do anything. Um, It was supposed to, the contract was set to expire last night at midnight. And I think uh, people at the station, including myself, who were covering it, were, you know, ready for a long night. And then I think, I want to say eight. 30-ish. Uh, we got an email from the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which is the entity that represents film and TV studios and streamers at the bargaining table. Right. Uh, and they said, talks are done. I emailed somebody at AMPTP. I go, what does that mean? Is the Writers Guild still there? And they said, we don't know. We left. And then a few minutes later, the Writers Guild put out a uh, statement on Twitter saying the strike was on. Um, so they got a, a jump start. I mean, everybody was prepared for this to happen. I don't think anybody wanted it happen. The Writers Guild previously had sent out instructions on where to go to picket. Um, it's very L.A. It has how to where to park, where the public bathrooms are, <laughs> what metro lines you can take to get there so you can go picket. And then uh, if you need to use the nearby bathroom at Home Depot, pick up some washers to fix your uh, leaking uh, kitchen faucet. I like that they're so on top of that. And just to be clear, the picket lines are going to go up. Is it starting this afternoon? At one o'clock. They, they made a map of where writers can go picket. You know, traditional studios like the Walt Disney Company and Paramount Studios and Warner Brothers. It's also Amazon. Netflix, Apple. There are a lot of companies that are in the streaming business where there will be pickets as well. Primary sticking point in all these negotiations, John, looks like it was something about mandatory staffing. Explain that one for people who might not be up on it. So in the old model of making a TV series, you would have a certain number of writers who would work a certain number of months on that show. And it could be six writers working eight months or so. And There's this concept called the mini room, which has come up in the last couple of years. The Writers Guild negotiators weren't even on top of it. Writers Guild members said this is a big problem. We need to deal with it. And basically what studios were asking in these mini rooms is like, we're going to give you a third of that staff and we're going to give you 
a third of that time. And we want you to put together either outlines or scripts for an entire season. We don't know if we're going to make it. So we just want to see what your ideas are. They do that. And the studio says, oh, you know, we're going to make this. They have saved tremendous amount of money on staffing and on uh, the terms of employment. The Writers Guild put out a uh, release of all of their negotiating points and what the response was from the AMPTP. And they said about minimum staffing and length of employment, AMPTP rejected our proposals, refused to make a counter. Um, that's what the Writers Guild said. The AMPTP, again, the bargaining entity for the studios and the streamers said, we cannot afford to make those kinds of deals. Now, I understand during this time, there's a real ripple effect when a union goes on strike, especially one that does quite as much as the, the Writers Guild does, that the other areas are going to be affected. What other groups of people right now might end up taking home a lot less money than they otherwise might? Well, we don't have to pass the hat for Jimmy Kimmel and Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Fallon Not and Seth yet. Meyers. We don't have to do that. Although those shows are going off there. They've said they're going off the air immediately. So then you have writers who aren't writing. And then if you start looking at production slowdowns, you know, late night is one thing. But if a couple of weeks, a couple of months in, production on, on network series stops, you have people... Let's just say that you have a family-owned catering company, and there's a TV series shooting on the Paramount lot. you got to feed 50 people. That's a great gig for you, uh, and you don't get it anymore. Um, I was at a dinner party that my wife was invited to. I went along as her plus one. Fancy dinner party was catered. I have really bad food allergies, so I went into the kitchen to talk to the caterers. There were probably 11 or 12 people there. Make sure they weren't going to kill me with any hidden tree nuts. And I asked them, how many of... How many people in the room worked in the business? Twelve people, nine hands went up. Wow. Uh, eight of them were actors. Another one was a costume designer. So those people are out of a job, too, should production shut down. But then it's the ancillary businesses. It's, you know, the lighting equipment rental companies, uh, car rental companies, hotels, if people are shooting on location and they're not shooting anymore. It is a massive impact. Probably, you know, could be about 30 or $40 million a day, uh, given how much production is happening right now. In just a minute, we're going to get uh, a little bit deeper on the economic context of all this, John. But on the face of it right now, is this similar to how the 2007 strike started? In a way. I mean, I think you can look at the history of writer skilled strikes and see them as kind of touch points for what was changing in the way that we consumed entertainment. Um and the Writers Guild, I will add, is by far the most militant guild. Since 1960, they have been on strike more than every other union in Hollywood combined. So 1981, uh, the Writers Guild goes on strike over pay TV channels. That's the year that both HBO and Showtime launched 24-hour schedules. Mm. 1985, the first year that Blockbuster Video opens a store, the Writers Guild went on strike over video royalties. So... Are you seeing a pattern yet? 1988, cable TV is starting. There's 44 million cable, basic cable TV subscribers. The Writers Guild goes on strike over those residuals. 30 years later, it's more than double that. And then I think the more telling one, 2007, the last Writers Guild strike, 100-day walkout, it was tied to something called new media at the time. We might call it the Internet. 
2007, there were 1.3 billion Internet users. Now, 5.3 billion Internet users. So the Writers Guild is either on top of or chasing new media. This time, it's about the boom in streaming platforms. They also want some accountability of how popular streaming series are. They don't know. Writers don't know if their show's a hit or a failure. They want to know how many people are watching it and whether or not they deserve to be paid more, as has been the old model. Talking right now with arts and entertainment reporter here at LAist, John Horn. Also on the line with us is Kevin Cloudin, chief global strategist at the Milken Institute. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Well, first off, you were behind the last report on the effects of the Writers Guild strike. Based on what you learned from that, how immediately do you think that businesses, local businesses, individuals here will start to feel the effects of this strike? Well, some of them are going to feel it immediately. Uh, as, as was mentioned, the late night shows shut down. Some of the things that have to require writers in the here and now shut down and they'll feel it. And anything that requires immediate writing uh, and any show where the rest of the unions feel like they will not participate because of something directly connected to the Writers Guild, that shuts down as well. And so that's going to impact a whole bunch of planning. It's going to impact a whole bunch of different decision-making on the caterers, on the dry cleaners, on the construction people, and they'll feel that. And the other thing that you'll start seeing is that a whole bunch of the anticipation and planning where actors and uh, craftspeople and various technical people and stagehands and so on they're all operating on the idea that they're, they might go on location somewhere, they might go out somewhere, they might do something. And all of those plans are being on hold and they're stuck in a essentially a no man's land while they're waiting for some idea of what the timeline is on the strike. Talking right now with Kevin Cloud and Chief Global Strategist at the Milken Institute. And you really crunched some numbers. I know a lot's changed with inflation, but uh, based off of what you recall from the last strike, what kind of uh, economic impact are we expecting when it comes to actual money revenue lost? Well, what we saw last time was that it, just more broadly, we saw over a $2 billion impact on the California economy, particularly Southern California. And now that was a three-month strike, and that was long enough to actually not only have a ripple effects in terms of real estate, it had a ripple effects in restaurants, it had ripple effects in a number of different land use uh, issues, you know, where people would come in and rent out properties, obviously studio spaces, but also on location and elsewhere, and to have real impacts. And we actually saw people uh, leaving the state, even at that point, or deliberately saying, hey, you know, if there's, I'm not going to stay in Hollywood, you know, I feel like the the economics of it are are too uh, transitory or difficult. And Mm. that could be an interesting situation. We also saw that at the time, because remember when this was going on, California went into the Great Recession earlier than the rest of the country, in part because of the writer's strike. And now we're not in that same situation, but we're definitely dealing with a more fragile economy because of the pandemic and a number of people who 
are more marginal in their own circumstances because of the prior halt due to the pandemic. You know, it really stood out to me, Kevin Cloudin at the Milken Institute, when I was reading back through your old report. I'm just going to read the sentence because it was a surprise to me. It says uh, the report projects that by 2009, the effects of the 2007 strike should be less noticeable. So there's two years there. And I think what's important to highlight for people is even once the strike ends, the feelings, the ripples will continue for potentially years to come. Absolutely. It makes people more reluctant and leery. It affects assessment of risk. And in Hollywood, where we're already seeing a huge numbers of decisions being made because nobody's quite sure where the revenue is coming from. You know, the pandemic especially affected predictions on uh, what kind of money is going to be made in the movie theaters. And as much as people talk about movie theaters being passe or movie theaters not being an issue, they're still important. And any revenue source is important. And anything that disrupts things and blows things up becomes a significant issue, not just now, but we see it well down the line. And as John Horde mentioned, the last strike was intended to be anticipatory because there was a feeling that where there was not a strike, where there was actually in the early 2000s where a strike did not happen over DVDs, it was actually averted that the Writers Guild felt like they had not negotiated well. And so they wanted to try and anticipate. And this time, the feeling is that there, it's gone long enough between a disruption because, once again, they did not anticipate not only the nature of these changes and how writers are employed, but the nature, quite honestly, of how the entire industry has been employing a lot of different staff. And that the economic pressures are such both for the people working in the industry and for the producers because the producers are having a hard time figuring out the con- and predicting the consistent revenue sources. Coming up on this bonus episode of Retake, more of my conversation with AirTalk on Elias 89.3 about the writer's strike. Welcome back. Here is the rest of my conversation about the WGA strike from earlier today with AirTalk guest host Austin Cross. Lynn has emailed us and says, speaking of the trickle down the line, I work as a craftsperson in a pre-production shop. I have been out of work for two weeks already as a result of the slowdown in production in anticipation of the strike. I am in cost cutting measure and says, thank you very much, of course. And Judy and Sherman Oaks says, I haven't heard what the result was in the end after the writer's strike last time. What was accomplished? What did the writers gain? John Horn, what did the writers gain last time? Uh, they made what they thought were significant enough improvements to their contract that it was approved. Uh, the other thing that is important to note, though, they had a negotiation three years ago. Something else was going on in 2020, and that was the pandemic. So in many ways, this contract is two contracts put together in terms of what they're trying to get in terms of advancement. So there, I think there's only one contract that was really, really unpopular. And that was the 85 contract where they gave away the lion's share of DVD revenues. 
you know, any good negotiation, yeah. you're going to get some things you want. You're going to give up some things that you don't want to give up. And I think the last contract was successful on those fronts. And they ended up getting many of the things they wanted in 07, 08. Now, you were trying to make a point to me right in between our break, John Horan, when it comes to alliance and the amount of competitors, the alliance and the amount of competitors that they have and how that factors into this. Explain what you were going for on that one for us, because I think you were leading up to something big. So not that long ago, when the Writers Guild or any other guild went to negotiate a new contract, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers was Disney, Paramount, Warner Brothers, Sony, like 20th Century Fox. Now... It's Amazon. It's more than 200 companies, but the big players are Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and then those other studios. So does Amazon care about broadcast television? No. Does Sony, which doesn't have a streaming platform, care about streaming residuals? No. So, and and then in the scheme of Apple and Amazon, entertainment is a rounding error. It's pocket change. So they might be willing to give up something more than Disney, which has its fingers in every possible platform, is willing to give up. When United Auto Workers negotiates a contract, mm. it goes from Ford to Chrysler to Caterpillar to John Deere to General Motors because each company has different interests. That's not what happens in Hollywood. I think it's an antiquated model where it's very hard to find consensus among the companies. Writers Guild, easy to find consensus. They have shared interests. The companies themselves don't. I mean, do you think it would bother the companies so much if, say, one company... You know, obviously you said like Amazon, since it's it's kind of a rounding error, they can just be, be fine with it. It seems as you're lining out here that it just makes it so much more complex, complicated and almost undesirable for some companies to want to participate in these negotiations just because they're going to have to give up so much more. Well, there is actually a story about a company, Lionsgate, which makes a lot of TV and some movies. They are not a member of the AMPTP. So the last contract that came up, they said, we'll give the writers whatever you agree to in the final deal. But even if there's a strike, we're going to keep working under this agreement. So whatever you're going to get, we'll pay it. But the Writers Guild didn't want to do that because then it creates kind of factions operating against each other within Hollywood. So, yeah, there are companies that would very probably be very happy to see if there was a deal and would be happy with the terms as they're laid out. The other thing I think is worth mentioning is so much of writing now is a gig economy job. You're not on staff for a long time. You go from show to show. You're hustling all the time. It's a little bit like Amazon, which has had its own unionization issues. So if you think about how Amazon hires up during holiday seasons and, you know, whether or not those people have job protections or good salaries. It's a little bit like what happens to writers because it's seasonal. You're hired one day, you're not the next. So you remember the movie Nomadland? Mm-hmm. Go read the book Nomadland by Jessica Bruder because it talks about work, the workplace at Amazon and seasonal work. And I think you can see a lot of similarities between seasonal work at Amazon and Jessica Bruder's book Nomadland and Hollywood's gig economy, which isn't just for writers. It's for a lot of other people who work in the business. For the Hollywood executives, John, stakes are pretty high because the other unions now, of course, the Screen Actors Guild, the Directors Guild of America, they're watching this. So not only is the, their potential that, you know, they could take a big hit in their, you know, pay their money, but then the other ones might come in to get their share of it as well. What are you seeing there? That's 
absolutely what happens. It's called pattern bargaining. And typically what one guild gets in one contract is mirrored by others. The Directors Guild of America, the least militant guild in Hollywood, they were on strike, I think, for three hours. It was more of an East Coast, West Coast thing one time. They were supposed to negotiate their contract before the Writers Guild. Very notably, they moved their contract expiration date back. So Writers Guild will set the pattern for the next group of negotiations that come up very quickly with the Screen Actors Guild and the Directors Guild. So whatever the Writers Guild gets will be copied largely in those contracts. And that's why the companies know they give the Writers Guild something. It could be triple that because they're going to have to give the same deal to directors and actors. John Horn, arts and entertainment reporter at LAist, up late and up early to cover (laughs) this breaking story, and we'll be on top of it as long as it continues. John and Kevin Cloud, and chief global strategist at the Milken Institute, my thanks to you both for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you. We'd love to hear your thoughts on how the strike is affecting you. So go to the story on LAist.com and our show notes for a link on how to share your story.